the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by Shayna Roth. She is a super talented gal with an insanely impressive resume. Shayna is a journalist, professor, mother, radio host, former prosecuting attorney, and author of the new book, Cold Cases, a true crime collection. I had a great time talking D.B. Cooper with her, and I know you'll enjoy this episode with my good friend, Shayna Roth. All right, Shayna, so every once in a while, I'll search D.B. Cooper in the news, and I came across an article, I think, believe it was from Detroit Today, that said you had a new book out, Cold Cases, a true crime collection, and you included D.B. Cooper in that book. Why D.B. Cooper? Um, I think my main reason was this is just such a fascinating mystery. It's a case that I think has really resonated with people and stuck with people. And I was really drawn to the fact that D.B. Cooper sort of represents our culture's love of the outlaw. And that's something that we have seen more and more in popular culture, particularly as uh, different television series have have sort of really identified with these uh, anti-heroes. I think uh, D.B. Cooper is definitely represented as an anti-hero and we're seeing and we have seen over the last 10 years or so, uh, the anti-hero really become our main star in popular culture in movies and in television shows. And I thought that would be a really interesting thing to delve into for that chapter. And honestly, I also just really wanted to include a chapter that wasn't about murder. I really tried to, <laughs> uh, when doing, you know, I think a lot of times when people think true crime, their mind automatically goes to serial killers and unsolved murders. And I really wanted to include at least a couple cases that were not that. I think it was a good choice. You know, I actually would not consider myself a true crime fan. Uh, I don't listen to any other true crime podcasts. I'm not really interested in that. But the two chapters in your book that I enjoyed the most were the Gardner Museum heist and D.B. Cooper, of course. It's just I find that sort of thing interesting. Like being able to pull something like that off, like a heist kind of situation, which I think, you know, Cooper is also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the heists are definitely... I think those might be a little bit more for people who like an intricate puzzle. I think that particularly unsolved cases, they they tend to be different types of puzzles. And I think that heists in particular are for those that are really interested in in sort of the most complex puzzles. Because if you've managed to uh, pull off a heist for, for art or, you know, by jumping out of an airplane with a bunch of money, I mean, that is the type of thing that requires so much planning and thought and skill. And, you know, there are cases with with murder where sometimes the person just got a lot of times the person just got lucky. It wasn't necessarily the most uh, thought thought through or uh, intricately planned murder. They just happened to get away with it because, you know, maybe they wiped their fingerprints off of something. But because museums or banks or, or, you know, airports nowadays are so well guarded and so well protected to pull off uh, a caper like that is, is so, is so difficult. Absolutely. I mean, what D.B. Cooper did is just unimaginable today. Oh, for sure. And it was, it, I knew that going into it, that at the time, uh, airport security was not what it is today. I didn't, I don't think I realized just how far we have come from the days of D.B. Cooper. I mean, he literally just walked up, said, hey, I want an airplane ticket, didn't have to show ID, didn't even really have to say his name. And he just walked on the plane with a bomb. I mean, it's it's really remarkable how much has changed since then. Oh, yeah. And 
you know, if I could give you some more credit for your book, your voice comes through a lot. Like your writing style is very conversational. Like I yes. felt like I was just kind of listening to you talk about things in that book. And it wasn't just this happened and then this happened. And then this person said that. So I really enjoyed that a lot. And your good, take on D.B. Cooper, you know, he could get in the back of the plane with a bomb and then light up a cigarette immediately. Yeah, it was definitely a different time back then. Yeah. And I and it, it just it was so just kind of funny to me in a way that 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 it really hadn't been done sooner that we think of D.B. Cooper as sort of setting off this this chain reaction of different plane heists. I mean, there were quite I touched on a few of them in the book that came after him that, you know, did a similar, you know, attempted a similar heist. It's just so surprising that he was the first when I, I'm just surprised nobody thought sooner that, hey, there's no security here whatsoever. I'll bet I could take over this airplane. Oh, yeah. There were a few heists. I wouldn't even call them heists. They took over a few planes before that, mm -hmm. but they all wanted to go to Cuba. <laughs> it wasn't like they were demanding right. money or anything. Right, right. The idea that, you know, hey, I could I could make quite a few bucks by taking over this plane, like surprisingly hadn't occurred to anybody until. But I guess, you know, somebody's got to be first. And it was DB. <laughs> yeah, you'd think they would have tightened up the security. Uh, you made the point in your book that Richard McCoy did it five months later mm -hmm. with a fake hand grenade. In a gun, like they they didn't change anything after that. I, you know the things that uh, th something I have learned about the government, both being a an attorney for, an, an attorney for a while and being a reporter who covered politics for quite a few years, is the government moves so slowly that when the the surprise is that they didn't move fast enough is not a surprise to me. I mean, it's just it, for whatever reason, everything always takes way longer than you think it should. <laughs> How familiar familiar were you with D.B. Cooper when you started this book? I really wasn't familiar at all. I had heard of him, uh, you know, as I think a lot of people have in passing. And I was familiar with the with a few of these sort of pop cultural re reiterations of D.B. Cooper. Uh, you know, I watched some of Mad Men and, you know, there was the ongoing theory that Don Draper was D.B. Cooper. I watched Prison Break and, you know, there was that whole thinking that one of the prisoners was D.B. Cooper. So he would pop up from time to time in in sort of my periphery, but I'd never really delved into the case as a whole. How did you start researching the case? Google. <laughs> <laughs> Everything starts with Google. Um, I start, And that's kind of true. I started out just... Um, you know, kind of digging around, poking around, seeing what are some of the more recent things that had been written about D.B. Cooper. Um, the website newspaper newspapers.com was my absolute best friend for all of these cases uh, because that gave me access to a lot of archival newspapers very easily. I um, was able to, to comb through stuff that was printed at the time and see what, uh, what the sort of feeling was about D.B. Cooper as he was pulling off, as he pulled off this heist and, and in the aftermath of it. And then I also uh, got documents from the FBI and was kind of combing through and seeing, you know, what was their take on it. And that's how I came across uh, one of the articles about how D.B. Cooper is is no Robin Hood about how he's, you know, everybody's thinking of him as this modern day Robin Hood hero type. And that's the part. And, and when I came across that, that was when it stuck with me. And that was when I came up with this sort of theme for that chap for this chapter of our love of the outlaw and our love of these uh, anarchist Robin Hood types. Yeah, that article's from like a aviation magazine. Yeah, the airline employees or something right i know the airplane industry was not fond of this at all <laughs> yeah i could definitely understand why but yeah your comparisons to you know like walter white and tony soprano i think those are pretty spot on you know and walter white and tony soprano they ended up murdering a bunch of people but cooper didn't right. he was able to pull this off without really hurting anyone. Right. Which, and, and I thought that that was an interesting point that uh, one of those articles made where they were like, he's not a Robin Hood. Why are we celebrating this guy? Was that, you know, he got lucky essentially that it never came to, came to blows that way. He, 
you know, showed the note, the stewardess went to the pilot, the pilot didn't, you know, try any funny stuff. He didn't try and be a tough guy. They landed the plane, the, you know, law enforcement, everybody really cooperated with everything that he wanted. And he was able to get out without taking any lives. And I, I am curious how different our perception of him would be if law enforcement had pushed back or if something had gone wrong and lives had been lost. I made a note to talk to you about this because in your book, I literally put it down and started thinking about what if the bomb was real? Because you made that point. If they're going to call his bluff, what does he do then? If the bomb's fake, then he's a joke and a coward and they land the plane and he's, you know, in his own prison cell already, basically. And if the bomb's real, then it's devastating. Mm Mm-hmm to to himself and everyone else on the plane. Do you think the bomb was real? Nobody's asked me that yet. I I do think it was real. I do. And I and I think it was real because he did not in in the research and the reading that I did just sort of I mean and I know that we don't know a lot about him, but based on what we do know, this was somebody who was very meticulous, who really thought things out. And I don't think that he would have taken the risk that that it was going to that they were going to call his that, that 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 they would call his bluff and he would be you know humiliated. I think that especially because he was the first one to really sort of do it in this sort of a way, he had no real blueprint for it. And so I think he was really doing this as a sort of all or nothing type of things. I mean, you see the guys who came after and just how kind of bumbling and uh, almost half hearted they were. It was kind of like, a, hey, this one guy did it. How hard could it be? I'm going to try and do it. And, and it. and it failed miserably. But I think when you're the first person to do something like this, you're not taking any chances. And I don't think he was going to take the chance that they would call his, his that that they would call his bluff and he wouldn't have a real bomb. You make some excellent points there. I I really think that you changed my mind on the bomb <laughs> being real. You know, and this is something I've researched and looked into and thought about quite a bit. And you know, your book covers Cooper, you know, what for what, 22 pages or something mm-hmm. like that, but it was excellent. And Thank I'm going to say I went from my opinion on the bomb being real to I was 95% sure it was fake. Now I'm 50-50. <laughs> so you can credit yourself for that change in my mind. Oh, thank you. <laughs> he also took it with him. So yes. if it's fake, do you leave it on the plane? Yes. And that's another really, I think, important point too is, you know, when he jumped out, any extra weight or, you know... It, is going to be a problem. So I think that he jumped out because he had done what he wanted to do. And he took the bomb with him because, you know, he didn't want any harm to come to the people that were on the plane. I mean, you could also, although see, now I'm going to talk myself out of this. You could also look at it as he took it with him because he knew it was fake and he didn't want anybody else to know about that. So he's like, you know, hiding the evidence of it being fake. And he figures out oh, when I land, I'll just, you know, toss it over my shoulder and be on my way. Although the, no pieces of the bomb were ever recovered. So which, when you think about it, see, now now, now the wheels are really turning in my head. You're getting like a live uh, stream of, <laughs> of, of what's going on in my brain. Like, man, it would be really dangerous to jump out of the plane, though, with a live bomb. I mean, if. If he landed wrong, I mean, it could have just exploded. So, oh man, see, now I'm 50-50 and I just talked myself into it. Into, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's also that the stewardess said she saw red sticks, which mm-hmm. leans more towards flares than dynamite. Right, right. Yeah. Ugh. So We'll never know, which is just the, 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 that's just one of the great pieces of this story is like, I just, I really don't think it's ever going to get solved, but that's probably for the best and probably the best part of it because we can keep having these hypothetical conversations. We can keep guessing and questioning, you know, what happened. Oh yeah. And with the DB Cooper story, the whole thing happens in the five hours on that plane. Mm -hmm. There is zero story before the plane and zero story afterward. Mm -hmm. So the whole story of DB Cooper is just on that plane. That's a really interesting way to look at it. And it's, it's, 
fascinating to me that, you know, that five hours or so of time has just really endured and created such a fantastic myth in American culture, because it really is. I mean, I think that, you know, maybe first, maybe some people aren't as familiar with D.B. Cooper today, but it is it. he definitely created this sort of character and this myth that has endured in popular culture that we keep seeing over and over again. Um, and I think that that's really interesting that he was able to do that in just, you know, the five hours that we know about. And granted, there's there's some afterwards, you know, who knows what he, you know, if he made the, if he survived the jump and there's all the, the investigation afterwards. But I mean, you're right. It really hinges on those five hours on that plane. Those are the only things that we're sure of. Oh, yeah. Did he survive the jump, Shana? I'd like to think he did. That's the romantic in me. The romantic in me says that he survived the jump and he, you know, lived in the wilderness and all of that. The pragmatist in me says, unless this guy actually was a professional paratrooper and and knew how to really work those parachutes that no, maybe not. (laughs) Um, Well, the other copycats all landed on the ground alive. That's true. That's true. I mean, it maybe maybe I overthink how difficult parachuting is um but yeah i like to think that he did that being said i mean if he did survive and he did live live on the most impressive thing about this whole case more impressive than you know surviving the jump more impressive than getting the money is the fact that if he survived that he didn't tell anybody that he was able to maintain his cover and nobody ever knew because I will tell you that one of the things that just will get people every time is talking you know you think I'm just gonna tell this one person they are inevitably going to say something to somebody whether it's intentional or not so I think if he did survive that is really the most amazing accomplishment of his life was not telling anybody and managing to keep that secret. Well, somewhere in between 12 and 900 people have confessed to being <laughs> D.B. Cooper. That's, is it that many? I've I read lost track. <laughs> reports of uh, over 900, but that's a number that's difficult to wrap my head around. I've, so, I, you know, I live in Michigan and I was, as I was working on this, I was, you know, looking at our local papers because our lo- some of our local newspapers had done um, it would come up in searches, and it turned out that like several people from Michigan uh, were believed to be DB Cooper, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. How funny and what a coincidence! I live in Michigan, and people think that DB Cooper came from Michigan. And then the more I researched, the more I was like, oh, somebody in every state thinks that they know who D.B. Cooper is and that D.B. Cooper is from their state. Okay, this is not like a like a kismet kind of a thing. Like every state tries to claim that they are the birthplace of D.B. Cooper. That's true. There are two pretty good suspects out of Michigan, uh, Richard Dick Lepsey and Walter Recca has some Michigan ties as well. Yeah, yeah, we got a couple of them. And I think that it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, they're, I don't know. I, I, I didn't give too much credence to, to them. Um, but you just never know, you know, which is why I love this story. You just, you know, maybe they are, maybe they, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. And, you know, in the meantime, we're going to keep writing books about the people who say that they are, because why not? <laughs> oh yeah. I've read a lot of different books about people who believe someone's D.B. Cooper. What's your favorite theory? Barb Dayton. Oh, okay. I'm not as familiar with Barb Dayton. Barb Dayton was born Robert Dayton and then had gender reassignment surgery in 1969. I believe 69. That's off the top of my head, so don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. But it was before the hijacking. And then she sort of falls into a depression and a funk and her life's not going that well. So she decides she still wants to prove that she's a badass and dresses back up like a man hijacks the plane, uh, grabs the money, escapes, basically throws it away because it wasn't about the money at all, and then goes back to her life as Barbara Dayton. And the reason she was never caught was because the FBI was looking for a man. Ooh, I like that. 
I also like the that she essentially threw the money away because that would one account for the money that was found by that kid in the stream, but also that's another great way to not get caught is to not spend any of the money because they had some of the serial numbers. Oh, that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, and her life is just a crazy wild story as well. Uh the Foremans wrote a book about her, The Legacy no, the legend of DB Cooper, death by natural causes. I had to look at my bookshelf <laughs> real quick, but That's it's a great, great story, and the Foremans are just great, great people. And it's something I've learned during doing the show. So many people I've talked to, I a hundred percent believe that they are telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But it's the story that they've been told, right? Right. It's that sort of secondhand friend of a friend or, you know, something that they were told by somebody else, which is, you know, is, is always, it can be really compelling, but you just can't quite trust it. Yeah. And some of the, some of the theories on Cooper are way out there, like uh, Tommy Wiseau. Which, tell me more about that one. He's the disaster artist guy who made the worst movie ever. They couldn't figure out where he got the money from, the weird accent. Yes, I had totally forgotten about that theory. Oh my God, I love that one. <laughs> yes, yes, that one. There's just no way. But I love that it's out there in the world. <laughs> oh, yeah. Were there any suspects when you were researching this that you felt like they were a really compelling suspect? Not really. I mean, when I was, and unfortunately, what because I had so many cases to work on, um, you know, I was only able to like skim into the theory part of everything and, you know, the different theories that of who it might be. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't really come across that I thought was super compelling. What I did love, however, and that's why I, I included it, was the whole issue with the reporter, uh, Carl Fleming, who was convinced that D.B. Cooper had sought him out. And he got a one-on-one interview and they did this whole big spread in the newspaper. And then it turned out it was just a couple of guys who threw on a hat and were just completely lying to him. I thought that whole court case and situation was just absolutely phenomenal and a great example of just how, how you can't be desperate to solve these things, you know? Definitely. Max Gunther had a book, I'm pretty sure his D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened?, where he's in contact with this guy, the guy supposedly passes away, and then his widow contacts him and tells him this whole fanciful story, and he can't quite verify all the information Mm -hmm. in it. And he's a serious journalist, the book's from 1985, and he basically finishes the book with, you know, I believe this story is true, I can't verify it the way I like, but here it is anyway. And I think so many of the Cooper stories are like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the people were desperate. You know, how many newspapers offered a reward for a $20 bill? Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, like that's just all they wanted. They just wanted just a little piece of evidence. Um, but I, and I think that that's part of, you know, sort of the media's role in cultivating this, this myth because they thought that it was a, or at least, you know, saw that it was, you know, getting huge traction. It was a huge news story. But like you pointed out earlier, uh, we didn't have anything after those five hours on the plane. So there were only so many times that they could write, you know, D.B. Cooper still missing. Law enforcement says, you know, still nothing. So they had to try and, you know, they were so desperate to find ways into this story and, you know, things to write about because D.B. Cooper was selling papers. Right. What do you write about in 1975 when nothing has happened? Like literally nothing <laughs> has happened. Right. And I mean, I mean, it, it was I, it was bad enough in 1975. I can only imagine what would have happened today with our 24 hour news cycle if something you know of this magnitude were to happen and reporters were trying to come up with more and more stories to tell about it when there's absolutely nothing. I mean. It, it just it boggles the mind to think of, you know, what crazy things they pro- I mean, they probably would have just been interviewing everybody that was on the plane and their family and their relatives and the relatives relatives just to try and find something, you know, like uh, passenger and D.B. Cooper's 
airplane, you know, their third cousin comes forward and says whatever. Oh, yeah. Now, I'll totally read that article. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the, the plane, the stewardess, you touched on a little bit. She was on that flight. Let's uh Tina Mucklow. Mm-hmm. She's with Cooper for five hours. She is, her life's threatened with the bomb. The plane lands. She's fine. She spends five hours with him. But then how many years was she harassed and asked about this? And it only happened in five hours in her life. Oh, God. I'm sure. But how much time has she spent since then with people asking her or tracking her down or stalking her? You know, people bring up there were no victims in this. But immediately after, Tina says that he was polite. And I think people are looking at it through like a 2020 lens where she is going to have a victim mentality for a while. It's 1971. I think that chick was pretty tough. She said he was polite immediately Mm -hmm. after and calm. I I don't think they were as traumatized by the incident as they have been by the press and publicity. That's a really good point. And I would, I would imagine that you're spot on by that. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, if you're, you know, it would be similar to a bank heist where the person is threatening you, but is very nice about it. You know, even, you know, bank tellers in those situations experience trauma in the aftermath. Um, But I think you're right with something like this. I'm sure that, in the immediate days after she was hounded nonstop. And I'm sure that for an ungodly amount of time, every year on the anniversary of the jump, she was getting contacted and hounded all over again. So she kept having to relive it every year. And and not only was she reliving it by having the press and other people reach out to her, I would imagine, not just the press, but, you know, just, just, nosy people or interested people, uh, you know, she would have to every year, probably if she didn't want to relive the whole thing all over again, avoid the newspapers because I'm sure it was sprawled all over the place and she would have to avoid different things. And this was a case that really sort of blew up in the popular culture. There were songs about it. There were t-shirts about it. I mean, I can't imagine you know, in the months after you've been traumatized by something like this, to be walking down the street and seeing somebody selling a D.B. Cooper Where Are You t-shirt. Yeah, that's a great point. She even kind of like went into hiding and went into a nunnery for a while as well. Yeah, and I and I and I get that. I mean, it's just it's it's unfortunate. And I think you're right. I think this is the type. These are the types of people that we don't think of as often when we think of these cases um you know we see it a lot in in other types of true crime where we get so focused on the the killer who did it uh you know like like the bundy or the Dahmer and you know their mentality and we just completely forget about the people that were harmed and we don't think about the victims and we don't think about their family members that were left behind if they were murdered um and I think it's important. I think when you look at cases where where there's some sort of crime, it's important to look at all of the people and, and to to ensure that you are not re-traumatizing them by, you know, getting a kick out of what happened. Yeah, especially people kind of like weirdly, I don't want to say idolizing, but obsessed with serial killers. Mm. There was a line in your book where you mentioned you could buy an exact duplicate of the Zodiac letter as a postcard (laughs) on Etsy for $4. And then you said, I'll let you decide whether that's uh, quirky or an extremely poor taste. (laughs) I I thought that is great. I like literally laughed out loud when I read that. (laughs) But it's it's true. And I think uh, particularly recently, and this is something that I I kind of talk about throughout the book and, and have struggled with myself as somebody who you know, is essentially contributing to the true crime culture by writing a book about it is, you know, how do we find that balance between an interest and an obsession? Uh, You know, that balance between, you know, wanting to understand why something happened and maybe learn from it and, you know, turning it into, you know, some sort of weird entertainment fodder. And 
and I totally get the the instinct and maybe the urge to sort of uh, in my head I call it millennialize true true crime where you know we're gonna put make bumper stickers and we're gonna you know make laptop stickers and we're going to you know put it on uh you know aprons and and you know all this other I'm just thinking of like the random things that, that are true crime I, I there was kitchen towels I've seen kitchen towels with <laughs> with I think Jeffrey Dahmer on them I mean it's just it's it's interesting and it's just it's such a it's something that I go back and forth with and I struggle with because I, I get, you know, the the desire to turn your interest into uh, a sort of physical manifestation and to find a community. I mean, I think there's definitely a true crime community out there. Um, but, the you know, the hard part comes when we sort of uh, have to remember that these are things that impacted real people and that there are people out there that are still struggling with with these traumas that happen to them or their family. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot doing this show. You know, I've had people on that that will say, you know, this guy, he was D.B. Cooper. And that guy's passed away, but his kids and grandkids aren't. Would I be upset to hear a podcast, somebody speculating that my grandfather had committed some sort of a crime? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. You know, sometimes I look at it, oh, it might be interesting. I would listen to it because it's about my grandpa. But then part of me is like, I would just want to tell those people to shut up. It's not true. And quit spreading this theory around. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it can at times feel like some sort of an invasion of of somebody that you knew. Um, you know, I, I could see people being frustrated if if they if they weren't a part of uh, this theory that there that someone they cared about was a criminal um you know in a lot of and not just in the db cooper case there are a lot of people who claim that the zodiac was their grandfather or that their great-grandfather killed the black dahlia i mean there's there's a there's an interesting um just sort of phenomenon of family members coming forward and proclaiming that a relative of theirs is the you know is some notorious killer or criminal of sorts um, but, you know, if that's not the case, I, I could see where, you know, you have a vision of someone that you care about. And if somebody else uh, is going to come in and say, actually, this is who this person you care about really was, it could feel like like an invasion or like they're they're trying to to change this person in your mind and how that can be frustrating. Yeah. Or even just getting attention using a family member's name. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. It's it's so fascinating that that's you know that there's just some people out there that really crave that type of attention and it doesn't matter if it is harmful to somebody who can no longer speak for themselves it's you know that's that's what they're craving for and I think in some cases it can be that there is there's some mental health issues that are that it's an important important to be sensitive to um, and in some cases I think people might just actually believe that their relative was this this notorious killer or this or this notorious criminal but but yeah it's it's an interesting part of this sort of true crime phenomenon another part of the true crime phenomenon i wanted to talk to you about the zodiac john benet ramsey db cooper there's like a popular trend now to link unsolved cases together that they were committed oh, by the same yes. person yeah i've I've done several podcasts on the Zodiac Killer and D.B. Cooper being the same person. Mm -hmm. I even did one where the Zodiac, John Benet Ramsey, Teresa Hallback, um, and several others were all murdered by a gentleman named Ed Edwards, who was a serial killer. But I'm not sure what it is with people trying to link all of these unsolved cases together, is there, do you think there's any validity behind that? Usually no. I, I think part of it is kind of an, if is like a, like an efficiency goal, like, Hey, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to solve a couple of these all at once. Um, <laughs> you know, and that sort of instinct to be efficient um, <laughs> with getting these things done. Uh, and I think, you know, it's when I look at, a lot of the different theories for these cases, I go into it thinking that if I hear hoofbeats, I'm going to think horses, not zebras. And I think some people think zebras and they want to 
they they are so adamant about solving these things that they are going to come they're going to go for any possible angle and if that means hey this one guy over here 10 years after the fact that we know of uh is somewhat similar to something else that happened well i'm going to connect those two because i just really want to to solve this thing and this is the only way that i can think of doing it do you think there's any link between the zodiac killer and db cooper <laughs> I do not. <laughs> but, you know, I've been proven wrong in the past about about many a thing. So who knows? <laughs> do you think the FBI flight path is accurate? I do. Do you think do you have reason to think it's not? Uh, there are many people who speculate that the plane flew west of the FBI's official flight path, moreover Woodland and Ridgefield. Mm. See, I and, and maybe this is the Pollyanna of me. I tend to to go along with until sort of proven otherwise with what um, with what you know documents and different things like that show, uh, unless of course I can think of a reason why uh, there would be cause to to falsify or to to change things. Um, I can't think of a reason why they would want to change. You know, not be honest about what the flight path was. Do you think it was possible that Cooper? worked for a government agency uh i think it's i think it's possible in that you know he it it would have allowed him some level of skill and planning uh and knowledge of the response that he would get uh from this i think that's very possible i think it's more likely that he had some type of military experience and military background um you know to to help with the planning but also to essentially survive in the middle of nowhere uh, once he landed until he was able to get to somewhere safe. And maybe even my one of the things that I think potentially happened is that when he landed, he camped out for a while, you know, just just to kind of wait until things cooled down a bit. Really? Why do you think that? Because I feel like he didn't have much on him, you know, and he was wearing a very particular outfit that... Uh, that was immediately, you know, displayed by law enforcement. You know, he's he's wearing the suit. He he looks like this, and I feel like if he came out of the woods and showed up like at at a diner the next day, <laughs> that that or you know was just walking down the street, you know, immediately thereafter before he'd had time to to just you know change some things around. I think that people would have been suspicious. I think. Now that I'm kind of talking out loud here, um, I think it's possible that he had stuff sort of squirreled away close enough to where he was going to land or where he had planned to land if everything went well when he jumped. Um, that maybe that's kind of how that worked out, that he kind of hid out for a little while with with his bag of whatever that he had squirreled away, you know, clothes and and food and whatnot this might be like a completely wild theory but that's that's how i would do it <laughs> how would he know where he was gonna land well so that's what i'm thinking i is if he knew the path that the plane was going to take and how long i mean this is this involves like a level of math and planning that i'm not skilled enough for uh if he knew the the, the path that the plane was going to take because he was familiar with that route and he knew how long it would take once in air to get to a specific spot. I'll bet he could kind of within a few miles figure out like, okay, we're in the air, like start the stopwatch. I need to jump in say 30 minutes to get to about where I need to be. And then he could just, you know, from there find his, where his stuff is. Cause he had to have had some level of planning in deciding when he was going to jump because he didn't want to jump and land like in the middle of main street on, you know, in some small town, he wanted to land in the middle of nowhere where nobody's going to see him. So he had to have had done something ahead of time to, to ensure that he was going to land in approximately some spot. I would think. Yeah, I think so too. That, that sounds right to me. He had to have known the area, at least he was planned on jumping. Right. Yeah. And I'm, and you know, if he did, you know, whether he sort of put stuff away or not, you know, I think he had to have had some level of, uh, you know, I, I need to jump at this time in order to get into this sort of general area. How do you think the money ended up on Tina Barr? 
the I'm sorry, what? The money. The and- money found by Brian Ingram. Oh, oh, the little the kid. Yeah. Yes. How did that? Oh God. I th- okay. So my theory on this one, and this is just based on nothing, like most of the theories. Um, I think if I am DB Cooper and I have a bunch of cash and I want to, you know, sort of throw off law enforcement, I think he put it in the river himself and hoped that somebody at some point would find it and maybe think that he was in the area. And while they're chasing their tails on that, he's off somewhere else. And it just happened that they didn't find it when he thought they would. But I think my theory is that he put it there. I would tend to agree with that. I'm not a big fan of the the dredge theory that Cooper was in the water and then the dredge picked up the money and then spit it out perfectly on the beach. No, no, I really think he put it there. I mean, it just, it, it was in too good a condition for it to just, you know, happened along there for him to have dropped it or anything like that. But, but that's my theory. That's just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how dredging works. You know, I don't know <laughs> the properties of money to like how long it would take for it to, you know, look more tore up than what it was. So. Dang it. My next 12 questions are about the intricacies of how a dredge works. (laughs) What do you think of the fact that they released two sketches and they look pretty different? Oh, I think that's a fascinating part of it. And I think that that is a really good example of of how people's memories work. Um, I think that... You and I've seen this before, you know, in in law school and things like that. We've talked about it where you can ask, you know, a dozen people to watch an event take place and then ask them afterwards what happened and you will get a dozen different answers. I think that that kind of shows how people's minds register things differently. Um, And and yeah, and I think that that's it, it, it seems so crazy uh, you know, from an outsider's perspective of like, you know, how is it possible that you could get two different sketches? Um, but I think it's, it just kind of shows how people's memories work differently. And, and not only that, but I think people's interpretation, you know, when you're asking for a sketch artist to do something in a way you're getting their interpretation of what is being told to them of what somebody looks like. Um, so if you got two different sketch artists, it's also possible that they are, in, you know, just sort of interpreting what they're being told very differently. Do you think it hurt the case to release two different sketches like that? Yeah, I mean, we'll never know. I mean, like what it was, probably not because they had nothing else to go on. <laughs> so it's kind of like, why not? <laughs> yeah, especially, I mean, the description they gave of him, you know, five, eight to six foot. And he drank and smoked and maybe had military experience and was in his 40s. In 1971, that was like 87% right. of dudes. Right. I mean, it, it's it's like when you go to those knockoff uh, like mind readers and they're like, I think you have a brother. And, you know, they're just kind <laughs> of like generally to giving you information about yourself. It's like, yeah, I know that could describe so many people. Why do you think this is still unsolved? Why is it still unsolved? That's a good question. Because I think I really do think that law enforcement did really everything that they could at the time. Uh, and, and, and in a lot of ways since then to to solve it. I, you know, I don't think this is a case that we see in other circumstances where it's unsolved because, you know, there was botched uh, police investigations or, or something of that nature. I think it's unsolved because because of airport security, honestly. I mean, there was never any way for them to get a solid identification on this guy. Um, and, and then he disappeared. Uh, you know, I mean, this, this guy was smoke and without, you know, some sort of clue as to his identity on the front end without absent him, you know, coming forward and admitting to it and then actually showing, you know, some physical proof that he did it. I just don't know how you could solve it, you know, or, or, you know, somebody else being like, Hey, this is who it was, who a lot of people, you know, claim to know like, Oh, Hey, my neighbor's DB Cooper. Um, 
but yeah, I think that, I think that it was, it was just too, he was just, he was smoke. <laughs> there was just no finding this guy. So is that what you think it would take to solve the case right now? A stack of $20 bills and... I think it takes something. Um, you know, I, didn't they say, isn't, this is the law enforcement has like his tie or something like that? No. That's yes. Nothing. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, I think that there's been advancements in law enforcement that, you know, maybe you could figure something out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you'd really need something that you could link to the airplane, you know, I, and, and really the only thing you have is the money uh, because, you know, the parachutes weren't so carefully, uh, you know, marked that you could figure out if that was the parachute that came from the plane. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you'd really need the money, but then you'd have to figure out like, okay, is the person like, how did you get the money? And, and what is the chain of evidence with this, with this stack of money? Um, cause like if I showed up and said, Hey, I got DB Cooper's money. Um, and they were like, yeah, this is the money. Where'd you get it from? You know, even if I, you know, pointed to some old guy, that's probably not a- enough proof to say that yes, definitively he's DB Cooper. My biggest worry in this case is that it somehow gets solved, but we don't get to know the story. Like mm. the, uh, the golden state killer was tracked down through that those family DNA ancestry type sites. Mm-hmm. If Cooper is somehow found that way and we find out, oh yeah, it was Todd Glass <laughs> who committed this crime. He's been dead for 17 years. Oh yeah. We, we know it was him, but we don't know any of the details. It would destroy me because i want more than anything else i want to know the story i want to know what happened when you landed on the ground what'd you do next yeah i guess i mean in that way it's almost better that the case remains unsolved because i think that and i think i think this happens a lot with these sort of spectacular cases any answer we get is probably going to be unsatisfying Um, you know, and I wrote about it a little bit in the book where, you know, there was the guy who, you know, there's this letter, uh, that essentially said, you know, I'm no Robin Hood and it was allegedly by D.B. Cooper sent anonymously out. Um, and it's, you know, if, if that really is the guy, then D.B. Cooper isn't some sort of, you know, cascading superhero, you know, outlaw kind of a guy. He's just, you know, a sad dude who did a thing. Um, you know, not intending for it to have these consequences and, and really just doing it for, you know, sort of unremarkable reasons. I think that as long as the case remains unsolved, we can project some of our wildest fantasies, you know, we can imagine that this was somebody who, you know, was, was mad at the system and and decided to, you know, take it into his own hands, or that this is somebody who'd been training all their lives to, to, to pull off this one big heist, or, you know, that, that he fought a bear in the woods when he landed, you know, I mean, we can project all these different things as long as it remains unsolved. But as soon as, you know, law enforcement steps forward and says, we've got it, this is what happened. I think a lot of people would get disappointed, particularly, like you said, if, we don't get to know the full story. Yeah, it would it would kill me <laughs> that if the case was closed, but we no one ever knows the story because Todd Glass never told anyone. So let's say our suspect is alive. Mm-hmm. Could he be prosecuted today? I'd have to check the statute of limitations on. They actually <laughs> um, they issued a John Doe indictment for the crime. Oh, right I missed before that. the statute of limitations expired. Smart. <laughs> so John Doe was indicted for air piracy, um, a couple other obviously terrible charges that you would come on. How brilliant with. is that air piracy? That's amazing. I love that. Um, <laughs> so if there's questions of statute of limitations aside, um. You know, it would it would depend on so much. It would depend on, you know, what is the evidence that they were able to to add to what they have right now? Because right now they don't have enough, um, I don't think. 
but it would depend on, you know, were they able to get the bills and where did they find them and how are they linked to their suspect? And, you know, did the suspect confess? And if so, does their confess confession match? And, you know, I think they would also have a really hard time if you bring this case to trial with, you know, the memories of everybody from that time. You know, one of the things that you have to do during a trial is that you have to have somebody identify the defendant. Um, And if that can't happen, that makes your case incredibly difficult. You know, if you're not able to, and I shouldn't have said have to, but it definitely helps. Um, You know, but if you have, are unable to have somebody stand up there and say, you know, look at the defendant and say, yes, that is the person, you know, that makes your case incredibly difficult. So, and I think, so you'd really be relying on the memories of the pilot and the stewardesses and everybody to, to not only be able to answer questions um, based on their memory of, of the prosecutor and, you know, cross-examination of the defendant, but you're hoping that one of them will see your, see your suspect. And, you know, despite, you know, decades of time passing, be able to say, yeah, that's the guy. So I think even if you had somebody, I mean, it, it would depend on so many things and it would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, it would be pretty wild. I think the youngest people on that airplane are now in their 70s. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be tough. Mm-hmm. And it would depend on uh, what the guy had to offer. Plus, you'd be prosecuting someone that's likely in their 90s. Right, right. I mean, I would imagine that even if law enforcement was able to to figure out who did it, uh, it's very possible that they would just be like, we're, we're, we're leaving this alone. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to go there. <laughs> All right, let's uh, dabble in the, the true crime genre a little bit. Do you think that these amateur sleuths and these forums dedicated to solving this crime or that crime, does that help the case or does it hurt the case? Um, it depends. You know, there have been cases where sort of like amateur sleuths or armchair detectives have have helped uh, with with solving a crime, be it because they've actually uncovered clues or because they brought attention to a case. Um, you mentioned the Golden State Killer, which is one of the chapters uh, in the book. And, you know, that got solved in large part because Michelle McNamara, who was a a sort of crime journalist, was really fixated on the case and would not let it go. And she was able to expend resources that law enforcement, which tends to constantly be overworked and underpaid when it comes to investigations, uh, just did not have the time or the ability to do. So I think, you know, that's an example of somebody who's not a member of law enforcement really making a difference in in a case. Where you run into trouble is when these sort of uh, amateur detectives or, you know, sort of true crime fans, when they interfere with law enforcement, um, you know, they can uh, either because they become a pest and, you know, don't law enforcement spend so much time trying to, uh, you know, talk to them or, you know, get them to leave them alone that they you know, are wasting precious resources, you know, dealing with their interference or because, you know, they on some level, you know, could harm an investigation. Maybe they start talking to somebody who is a suspect, um, but law enforcement hasn't approached them yet. And like they sort of figure them out on their own and then they spook the person. I mean, that's that's always something that's possible. So I think it's it's important to when you have these these people or these communities that are trying to sort of on their own solve cases to uh, to just be mindful of you know am i doing something that could potentially harm the investigation is there any legal issue in accusing somebody of a crime what do you mean you mean like as as a as a regular person yes i'm going on all these podcasts and I'm saying that Billy Locke committed this crime. Billy Locke is alive. Mm-hmm. 
I always get libel and slander mixed up. Let me figure out which one it is. Hang on. I should know these things, but I always get them mixed up. Um, so again, I, I am a lawyer. This is not me giving legal advice. However, um, you know, I think that it is possible that you could run in to, to a, to a lawsuit, um, depending on how it is. One of them is, is spoken and one of them is written. Um, you know, you could potentially run into that if, but the person has to show that, um, that by being accused of, of a crime that they did not, one, they have to prove they didn't commit it. Um, and you know, two, they'd have to, because truth is a defense Two, they'd have to prove that, um, you know, that they suffered some sort of damage as a result. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's absolutely possible. And that's why, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm always very careful of, uh, saying, you know, these are theories. I'm not actually accusing anyone. Um, you know, in the John Bonet Ramsey case, this came up where there was a documentary that was made that essentially accused, uh, John Bonet Ramsey's brother Burke of, of killing his sister. And he sued and the case was settled outside of court for an undisclosed amount. So when you do have instances where you're going about accusing someone of a crime um, publicly and, you know, in writing or, you know, on podcasts or whatever, and you're definitively saying like, this is the person that did it. You got to be real careful because that definitely does open you up to that possibility of being sued. What if the person's dead? What if I, I'm saying that Abraham Lincoln killed JFK? <laughs> that that goes beyond my memory from law school, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's possible that the keepers of that person's estate or family members could, could file some sort of a lawsuit. I think it gets a lot more tricky and a lot more hairy when that happens. Um, so yeah, that's that's the best answer I can give you on that one. Is a maybe. <laughs> maybe. Okay. Making a note of that. One of the questions I usually ask is why doesn't this case get more attention? But I'd like to change that a little bit around for you because in your uh is it Isabella Stewart, the Gardner yeah. Museum? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked a little bit about why that case doesn't get very much attention. And it really hit home for me. The true crime as a genre, podcasts and documentaries and whatnot, tends to lean really hard towards women. Mm-hmm. My audience leans real hard towards dudes. It's like <laughs> if I'm looking at my the Facebook group or my Twitter page, it's 80, 85 plus percent guys. Mm-hmm. What? What do you think is with that phenomenon? Oh man, this is, I mean, there've been books written about this uh, and, and essay upon essay written about, about this. So you're right. I mean, the, when it comes to, to sort of the traditional thought or the sort of like more commonly held thought of true crime, which is murder and assaults and serial killers, um, that does tend to skew towards women. Um and and I think that things like uh, actually I, I didn't real I, I hadn't really considered that other types of crime might skew towards uh, male. Uh, you know I, I don't really know what it is. Um, you know I I've hypothesized about this. You know I think that for women and and the sort of you know interest in murder and serial killers, I've seen many theories about it. One one of them is that. Uh, you know, women are often the targets of these cases and it's a way for them to sort of gain knowledge so that it doesn't happen to them and make them feel secure. Um, you know, another theory is essentially that it's just, it's, it's, it's the mystery of it. It's the community that has sort of built up around it, that draws in more people. Um, I don't think there's any one answer, though. I think that every person who, you know, sort of takes on true crime as as a hobby or or a deep interest has their own reasons for it. You know, some of them 
are have have been victims themselves. Some of them are, you know, puzzle enthusiasts. Some of them are just really interested in the macabre. Uh, you know, I think everybody comes to it differently and for different reasons. And I think it's just one of those things that while we have seen a pattern that we can't quite account for a reason for that pattern just yet. That's a very politically correct answer. (laughs) I am still a journalist. I try and not. (laughs) I wanted wild speculation. That's what I was looking for there. Uh, no, no. I, 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 when I, when I'm able to quit my day job, I'll give you lots of wild speculation, but. <laughs> but even like when I was going through your book, like I said, the two chapters that I w- was way into were the Gardner Heist and D.B. Cooper. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is. Why am I attracted to those high stories, but not necessarily to John Benet Ramsey or Natalie Holloway? And, uh, you know, I have female friends who listen to, even my sister, they listen to true crime podcasts. They don't care at all about D.B. Cooper. <laughs> and it's like, I I'm, I don't understand that. I think that, you know, I think that there is an emotional component to being interested in, in murders and serial killers and that type of true crime. Um that maybe isn't quite there with heist. Um, and, you know, this is not me saying that women are emotional um, more so than men. Cause I don't believe that they necessarily are. Um, but there might be some level of, of interest from that perspective that might lend itself uh, more for women than for men. But, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I love them both. I lo- I like all all t- I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I I love all types of crime. I you know, will pay attention to to all types of crime, you know, and I am a firm believer that if people would look beyond, you know, people in the true crime community would look beyond serial killers and murderers, they would find that there's a whole big world out there of fascinating, you know, bank robberies and, you know, bombings and uh petty larcenies and home invasions and uh, you know there's just so much crime out there (laughs) to be explored (laughs) there's so much crime out there there is (laughs) so much (laughs) all right well is there anything we missed on the db cooper case i don't think so you're very thorough you covered well even stuff that i hadn't really thought about as much so yeah no i'm I think you got it all. <laughs> and I do appreciate in your book that the chapter on Cooper didn't start out with five pages of exactly what happened on the airplane. Oh, yeah. No, I tried to stay away from that in, in all of it. You know, I didn't want this to just be uh, a sort of factual recitation of what happened for each of these cases, uh, you know, and just sort of a dry like this happened, this happened, because I you can get that on you, you can get that from Google. I mean, I knew that for a vast majority of these cases, the people reading it are going to be at least somewhat familiar with what happened. Um, So I just kind of assumed that people would be familiar enough that we could, that I could tell these stories in a, in a different kind of way and and speak to them more as commentary uh, and, and looking at broader themes than just, you know, on the day of whatever he got on a plane. I think it was a good choice. I really appreciated it. I enjoyed reading the book. I thought it was funny. I liked your commentary along the way. I thought it was really insightful. You know, even on D.B. Cooper, I had to put the book down and think, hmm, well, she made a good point there. <laughs> you know, and I've read 40 other books on D.B. Cooper. So you did a really good job. Thank and you so much. I really enjoyed at the end of the book uh, in your acknowledgments. You mentioned that you couldn't wait to meet Eleanor and thank you for (laughs) being calm while writing this book. Yes, that is my daughter. She was born in April and she's been great. (laughs) Good deal. I enjoyed the book and I recommend it to everyone. Is there uh, anywhere people can follow you or if they have a question, if they want to tell you you got everything wrong, where can they do that? I love comments. I am a huge fan of people reaching out. I love to talk to people about 
everything. Um, so I am on Twitter and Instagram at C-H-E-Y-N-A under slash R. Um, Shayna under slash R. Uh, yeah, so Twitter and Instagram is is a great way to find me. And if you're interested in in picking up a copy for yourself, it's available on Amazon at Target. Um, and if you like to support local bookstores, which I heartily uh, recommend, if you go to indiebound.com, uh, it's a great website that if you type in the name of the book and then uh, click on it, and then on the side, if you type in your zip code, it will tell you what. Uh, independent bookstores near you are carrying it. Do you have an audiobook? Not yet. I hope they do an audiobook though. <laughs> I would no, love to read I hope <laughs> I hope you do an audiobook. I hope that that would be that would be my preference. <laughs> it's gotta be your voice. You've got a great voice. Thank you so much. <laughs> well thank you for joining us, Shana. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Go grab a copy of Shana Roth's new book, Cold Cases, a true crime collection. And follow her on Twitter at Shayna underscore R. That's C-H-E-Y-N-A underscore R. We'll have links to it all in the show notes. Is there a theory you want us to cover or a suspect we don't know about yet? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. Instagram at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Thank you to Shana Roth for coming on the show and for including D.B. Cooper in your book and doing it well. Thank you to Russell Colbert for his work on the show and doing it well. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.